0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Jack Goldsmith, co author of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, joins the Post to explore the legalities and political parameters of removing a
1: president from power. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today, our subject is something on all of our minds after the storming of the U.S. Capitol by a violent mob a week ago. And that's the orderly transfer of power and the related questions of impeachment, the invocation of the 25th Amendment, and pardons. Our guest to discuss these crucial issues is Jack Goldsmith. Jack uh, is a former senior official of the uh, Justice Department under George W. Bush, is a Harvard law professor, is the co-founder of the blog Lawfare, which many specialists uh, follow very closely. He's also the author with Democratic lawyer Bob Bauer of a new book called After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, which I recommend to people who want to look at the issues we'll be discussing today uh, in more detail. Uh, Welcome, Jack. Thank you for joining us on this very important uh, discussion. So Jack, let's jump right in with a question of impeachment. Uh, the House Minority Whip Liz Cheney has said that she'll vote for it. Uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader for now, Mitch McConnell, has indicated he might be prepared to to bring it before the Senate. Uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, given the limited time, whether you think this is the right remedy and whether you think that the charge that's been drawn by the House is a good one.
0: I do think it's the right remedy. I can't think of... a a set of events since the election that would constitute an impeachable offense more than what President Trump has done, Uh, beginning with his questioning of legitimate results, with his spreading of lies and conspiracy theories about those results, which had an impact on his supporters, with his efforts to coerce uh, state officials into changing the votes, with his effort to get Vice President Pence to act unlawfully in his formal role in uh, counting the electors. And finally, with his uh, actions last Wednesday, that combination of events is easily uh, an impeachable offense. The House of Representatives has described it in one charge as incitement to, resurrect, to insurrection, but the description of that charge includes all the events I just mentioned. And I, I do think it's appropriate. I think there needs to be Firm action by the government in response to this unprecedented act.
1: So let, let me just ask about about timing. We have uh, the inauguration scheduled for the 20th of January, a, a week away, and there there is a question about whether a, a trial could be held after impeachment. Uh, it seems almost impossible for the Senate to weigh these charges. Do you think that impeachment should go forward? before the 20th regardless, and what would you advocate once the House takes action?
0: So these are hard issues. They involve both legal questions and hard policy calls. My view is that it seems like the House is on the verge of impeaching the president. I think it's appropriate to impeach him as soon as possible. I think it would be appropriate and constitutional for the Senate to have a trial before the president uh, leaves office. For reasons you suggest, I don't think that's feasible, in part for reasons having to do with the Senate calendar. The Senate could, in theory, have a quickie trial, but um, I don't think that's going to happen for a whole whole host of reasons. I think the appropriate course is to impeach the president now and have the trial at some appropriate point after he leaves office, which raises a question under the impeachment clauses whether that is allowed. I believe that it is, but it's not a completely clear uh, issue.
1: So uh, one question, obviously, is whether a new Congress would have to restart the clock by, in effect, impeaching, not in effect, in fact, impeaching a former president. How how would that work? It simply carry over from one Congress to the next? Yes, it
0: could. The articles of impeachment could be sent in the House from the House of Representatives to the Senate at a later date, and the president could be tried, and if two-thirds of the Senate agreed, convicted, and importantly, the availability of disqualification from future office. Now let me just add, that's my reading of the impeachment clauses, that's the reading of most people, that's most scholars' reading of the impeachment clauses. A lot of this is unprecedented, and uh, so I, I can't tell you firmly that that is available, but I do believe that it is, and I think that's the best reading of the Constitution.
1: Let me ask, since after January 20, the question of removal from office uh, no longer obtains, could the Senate focus strictly on the question of barring the president from holding future office, and would that be wise?
0: It would first have to convict him, and uh, disqualification would be a consequence following conviction. And conviction takes two-thirds, two-thirds vote. It's a high stand, it's a high bar. And there's a question whether there will be two-thirds of the Senate who are willing uh, to convict the president of this clearly impeachable offense. Um, so they would first have to convict him, and then the availability of disqualification would uh, arise. The conventional wisdom, again, there's precedent for this, is that it would only take a, a majority vote for disqualification, um, but it does take two-thirds vote to convict him. So that's the high bar.
1: So uh, one of the questions that we've raised editorially at The Post, it's a political question as much as a legal one, but I'd love your your thoughts about it. Uh, we've written that uh, President Biden, uh, Pre- President-elect, soon-to-be President Biden, uh, needs the full attention of the country and the Congress as he sets out on the Know, rescue work uh, to deal with COVID-19, our our economy, all the problems that we uh, know about and have discussed. Do you worry that a, an impeachment trial in the in the Senate in the early weeks uh, of the Biden presidency would be a distraction that that might undermine his presidency at the very moment it's beginning, when he's trying to gather support and unity?
0: I do very much worry about that, and I know the Biden administration worries about that. The first 100 days are precious, and this would be a very controversial and unprecedented event to be trying an ex-president just after an election. There is discussion of delaying the trial. I do think that is possible. Um, There's also discussion, apparently, that President-elect Biden has spoken to Speaker McConnell about the extent to which they could divide the Senate business to proceed as quickly as possible in confirming his uh, appointments so that he can get his government up and running. So this is all under discussion now and I completely agree that this is a danger point going forward. Another danger point going forward of course is if Trump is actually acquitted. Um, then he would could claim he would claim vindication from that. So this is not these are not easy choices They're, it's it's fraught going forward along any of these dimensions. But this extraordinary act requires an extraordinary response, and my hope is that that uh, the the House will impeach, which I do believe will happen, and that two thirds of the Senate will convict, and we'll see. But there are there are many danger points ahead. I agree, and the timing issue is a hard one.
1: Let me ask about other remedies, Jack. One thing that uh, p- people are bound to think about is the money that. The federal government will spend for uh, Donald Trump as an ex-president for Secret Service protection, for uh, office space, uh, all the other uh, special perks that an ex-president gets. Is, is there a way to deal with that issue directly that you think would be appropriate, appropriate separate from the impeachment and conviction question?
0: I believe the only way – so we're, we're talking about the, something called the Former Presidents Act, and it gives pres, former presidents uh, a stipend, uh, a salary, uh, a pension, I guess it's called, and a stipend for office matters and travel and the like. And as I read the statute, President Trump will qualify for that. The only exception is if – this is what the statute says – is if he's removed. And I don't believe he's going to be removed before January 20th. So I do think that under the statute, he will qualify for all of these uh, benefits. And I believe the only way to change that is by a new statute. I do believe that Congress could, by um, majorities in both houses signed by the president, enact a new law that, in effect, uh, changed the rules for these presidential benefits for President Trump.
1: So what about criminal remedies that, that might be uh, sought either through the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia uh, or uh, the D.C. Uh, uh, prosecutors. Uh, do you think that that criminal approach is uh, sensible? And is it possible to charge a, a, someone for acts that that he committed while he was president in your judgment? So we're talking
0: about criminal process against the president after he leaves yes, office? Yes, against,
1: first against the president. Then I want to ask about, about people like Rudy Giuliani. But first against the president. Michael Sherwin, so, the acting U.S. attorney, suggested that he, he was considering such charges. Is that a wise or, or legal uh, avenue?
0: So there are going to be many issues about the president's potential criminal acts in office once he leaves office. And one of them will be what happened last Wednesday. There will also be questions about obstruction of justice and other matters. I'll just focus for the moment on the question of what happened last Wednesday. I am very doubtful that there's a valid prosecution that's going to be available against the president after he leaves office. There's no theoretical bar a former president can be prosecuted uh, for acts committed in office if there's a crime that he committed. But and the basic charge is that he incited what happened last Wednesday. And in some sense, President Trump clearly did. But I don't think that that will satisfy, for, satisfy any of the criminal statutes because of the First Amendment. The First Amendment places a very, very high bar that, that the president will be able to benefit from on speech that leads to incitement of violence. And I and most scholars who have looked at this agree that the president will probably get First Amendment protection from criminal prosecution in that context. That doesn't mean there aren't other criminal remedies available against him for other things, but I don't think that that is going to be a successful prosecution. And, of course, the, the Garland Justice Department is going to have to ask itself one important consideration in any uh, attempted prosecution of the president is likelihood of success.
1: And what about Rudy Giuliani? Would would that same First Amendment privilege uh, extend to him uh, and the remarks he he made uh, hours before the storming of the Capitol, calling for trial by combat? Is that protected speech in your judgment uh, for which a criminal prosecution simply wouldn't be appropriate?
0: I'm afraid I do think it fall. It would fall within this First Amendment protection. I mean, that was more insightful and maybe closer to the line. But the First Amendment doctrine, the way it's been interpreted, really requires explicit direction to violence and not sarcasm or indirection and the like. And it requires an imminence. And the court cases on this are very speech protective. So I think that the First Amendment law would probably have to change. Now, let me add. That there's a lot we don't know yet, Giuliani may have been involved in other things, but I believe that based on his speech alone, a prosecution would be difficult.
1: Let me turn to some of the other remedies that have been discussed, Uh, starting with the 25th Amendment. The the train may have already left the station on this with the House moving so quickly toward impeachment. But I'd be interested, Jack, in, in your thoughts about the 25th Amendment as a remedy when we have cases of egregious conduct, and whether it's something that needs to be rethought and maybe rewritten in law uh, to to make it more useful in the future?
0: So it's a good question. The 25th Amendment was not designed for malfeasance in office. Uh, that's what the impeachment process is for. The 25th Amendment was designed for presidential inability, primarily physical or mental inability, uh, disability, I should say the president physically or mentally unable to carry out the office. And it sets up a process whereby the vice president and the majority of the cabinet can basically declare the president unfit, unable to carry out the duties of the office. That triggers the vice president becoming acting president. There's a back and forth process with Congress, uh, and ultimately uh, Congress gets the final say. Now as you, as you know Vice President Pence sent a letter I think either to this morning or last night to the speaker of the house saying that he wasn't going to invoke the 25th amendment he didn't think it was appropriate that's probably the right constitutional reading in this context because of what the 25th amendment was for last week you know there's there's a line here and the and it's for this it's for the vice president and the majority of the cabinet and the congress to interpret about what constitutes disability, whether the president has lost his capacity so much that he can't effectively function as president. There have been times when Trump has, many times when he seemed like that, and last week was certainly one of them. Um, But I think now that the impeachment process has begun and now that Trump's craziness, at least for the moment, seems to have abated, I do think the vice president is right that that's not the right remedy. As for whether it should be changed, I don't believe so. Um, I do think that remedy is appropriate for physical or mental disability. There is this impeachment process. It's a process that is designed for just this problem. And I think it would create really perverse incentives if we tried to ratchet up the 25th Amendment process.
1: Let's look at the last big question other than uh, more violence on Inauguration Day that we face in the in the last week of, of Trump's presidency, and that's the question of pardon power. Uh, first, do you think that the president has the, the power to pardon himself? He has, it's said, asserted that right in conversations with some of his close aides. What's your judgment on the law?
0: So let me just say that the pardon power is among the broadest powers given to the president in Article II. It has only two limits on its face. It's limited to to federal crimes only, and it is cannot be used to avoid impeachment. Other than that, it's an unqualified power and has been interpreted very broadly by the Supreme Court. On the question of self-pardons, um, there is, it's, it's a genuinely uncertain question. I'm gonna answer your question and tell you what I think in a second, but let me just say that there are arguments on both sides. Scholars are divided about this. There's no judicial decision. One very important factor, however, is that the Justice Department uh, in Watergate in 1973, or maybe 74, wrote an opinion on this question. It was actually 74, about a week before Nixon resigned, wrote an opinion that actually said, without much analysis, that the President cannot pardon himself on the theory that no man can be a judge in his own case. And uh, The constitutional question is contested, but that interpretation and and the fact that the Justice Department has stood by it for 46 years will, I think, weigh heavily in any consideration by a court in considering the validity of a self-pardon. That's how the issue will come up. There's no doubt that Trump can write the piece of paper and pardon himself. The question is, will it be respected if and when the Biden administration brings a prosecution against him? A court ultimately will determine that. I believe that the court, the Supreme Court, will ultimately conclude that a self-pardon is not valid. Uh, I think they'll do so based on the nature of what a pardon is—that it's basically an act of mercy from one official to another person convicted of a crime. It requires a bilateral relationship, and that one cannot pardon oneself. But I want to emphasize that there's no explicit precedent on that, and the text of the Constitution is silent on it.
1: And Jack. What about a pardon from President Trump to all those charged as a result of their actions uh, in the storming of the Capitol on January 6th? Would that be legal? Could it be contested? Uh, Could prosecutions go forward under a new administration regardless of that pardon?
0: I'm afraid that yes, he could pardon those who engaged in these acts that the pardon would be most valid and and hardest to contest for those who have actually been named and the crimes that have been identified. Uh, There have been amnesties in the past where presidents have pardoned uh, unnamed people for acts, you know, uh, related to um, um, acts against the government. The pardon power does extend this far. So, unfortunately, the president could pardon these folks and I think it would be very, very hard to unwind. Uh, the only, um, and I hope he doesn't do that, obviously, but one can imagine him doing that. And this raises all sorts of questions about whether we need to have a hard rethink on the pardon power. Uh, I will say, though, that it would leave state prosecutions, prosecutions under the District of Columbia law. And there are laws in the District of Columbia that have been violated. So Trump cannot relieve them of all criminal liability. But he could wipe out, uh, while president, um, um the criminality of their acts. Yes, he could.
1: Before we leave the question of, of, of pardons, let's just unpack your comment a moment ago about about the scope of the pardoning power. In your book, you discuss uh, whether we should re-examine that and think about new limits. Talk a little bit about, about your view uh, about appropriate reform of this uh, extraordinary pardoning power.
0: Right. So there are Basically, three levels of reform that are possible, and we advocate two of them. One level of reform is on this question of self-pardons. It's, as I said, an uncertain, it's a contested question. We believe that the Congress should enact a statute immediately declaring its constitutional view that self-pardons are invalid. That by itself will not resolve the question. Uh, it will be ultimately for a court to decide, but it will help influence the court by having the constitutional views of another branch. That's one modest, but important reform. A second, more important reform is to make explicit, uh, that the president's, uh, pardon that, that the president cannot pardon someone for, a, let me, let me state this more, more accurately, sorry. That if the president did someone in exchange for a bribe, or in an effort to obstruct justice that that itself can constitute a separate criminal act for which the president of the United States can be held criminally liable. We think this is very some of the pardons that Trump has issued might implicate such a rule, but the federal statutes are not clear on these points. These are the most abusive possible types of pardon. We think this is something Congress can reform and should reform as soon as possible. The third set of reform, and one we don't get into because it opens up a whole range of issues, is to actually reform, to have a constitutional amendment of Article 2 and actually reform the pardon power. This is dangerous. The pardon power serves many, many good roles. It's, It's served an important role in American history. There are ways to reform the pardon power through constitutional amendment that would cut out the abusive parts and maintain the virtuous parts. But it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous path because who knows what will happen once you do that, and that's a much harder path, also obviously, than a mere congressional statute.
1: In the eight minutes or so we have left, uh, Jack, I want to ask you to put yourself in the place of Merrick Garland, uh, our next Attorney General, uh, Chris Ray, who uh, I wrote this morning, will continue uh, as FBI Director in the in the Biden administration. And think with us about the investigation of the insurgency that surfaced so violently a week ago in the storming of the Capitol. This is a broad movement. It has deeper roots than people realized it implicates many thousands, perhaps you know, into the millions of people who were sympathizers. How do you think the Justice Department and the FBI working with local law enforcement should go about this investigation and doing it in a way that doesn't create more insurgents in the process?
0: Well, the latter part is a very difficult thing to, to achieve. Let me say first, I believe that right now, the FBI and the Justice Department is doing everything in its power. They've said they're doing this, and I believe they're doing this, everything in their power at this very crucial time in the transfer of democracy to identify all of these uh, conspiracies that are floating around the country and to check them before they can occur. So there's kind of a preventive action going on right now uh, that involves criminal indictments, but it also just involves prevention, not unlike terrorism prevention. We want to make sure that we have a peaceful transfer of power. I think that the Justice Department and the FBI under it can and will use every tool at its disposal. It's very important to send a very strong signal here that this is unacceptable, both to send that message and for incapacitation of the insurgents and for deterrence. But you raised the point that going after them hard is going to also you know, have an impact on this community and perhaps lead to more problems. That is an extremely difficult problem to control, but I don't think you can control it by going easy on these insurgents. I think it's very important to be very aggressive in using all criminal law tools to bring as much uh, law enforcement consequence to bear as possible in what happened. What happened last Wednesday was one of the worst worst events in American history and something that never should have been allowed to have happened. And it needs to be made crystal clear that it's unacceptable to the nation.
1: So one of the issues that I'm sure will be raised is whether the the federal government's, the FBI's surveillance powers, their ability to look at videos that were shot, look at people's emails, look at their social media accounts, is overly intrusive. This is a group that's been complaining that the federal government is too powerful as it is. How would you answer those questions? They're sure to be to be to be raised by by people as the investigation goes forward.
0: So this is a problem because, as you know, um, the Michael Horowitz report of the um, investigation of the Trump campaign revealed lots of problems with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act process for gaining warrants from a secret court to um, to investigate uh, counterintelligence or potential crimes. And there's going to be deep suspicion about the use of these tools in this context. These tools will be used. It will probably be different authorities. I am sure that Chris Ray, who was, who was uh, not happy about that Inspector General report and what it said about the FBI. I am sure that he will be bending over backwards to follow right process and to ensure that what he's doing in terms of surveillance and using these tools will be bulletproof from the ex post perspective when it's examined. Uh, but that's all he can do. I mean, his first order of business is to make sure that this is under control and he has to do so in a way that's sensitive to the law and sensitive to right process, but we have to use these tools they are lawful tools. Uh, There's a way to use them in the right way, and I expect that they will be used that way.
1: There's another interesting question that we're just beginning to think about, and that is whether uh, members of Congress who incited this mob uh, to actions that threatened the lives of their fellow legislators should be held to account. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about whether the appropriate remedy is censure, which has been discussed, uh, whether there are criminal uh, uh, statutes that might be relevant. How how should this be handled? As as lawmakers think about uh, Senator Josh Hawley or Senator Ted Cruz and their speeches and what's seen as their incitement, what should they do about it?
0: So I'm not sure, so this is a hard question. Also, you're asking me good, but hard questions. I'm not sure that what they did Is properly called incitement. I think they acted wholly irresponsibly. I think they weren't being candid about what they were doing or why they were doing. I think they did it in a context about the transition of democracy that was wholly irresponsible. I don't, based on what I've seen so far, think anything they did rose to the level of a crime. And I don't think that's the proper remedy. Congress has remedies of censure or even expulsion. I don't, I'm not sure expulsion is the right remedy either, perhaps censure. Um, You know, this is not the first time that politicians have in the counting of the electors made objections and those precedents will now be looked at much more closely and what happened in those precedents. I think that at a minimum, informal sanctions, which they're receiving from all quarters, including from the Republican Party, is in the first instance the right thing to do. And the Congress might consider censure after looking at the whole record. Um, I don't think that expulsion is going to be uh, successful.
1: I want to ask you to close, Jack, by just giving us a two-minute uh, summary of, of the arguments in your, in your book. You're basically saying, after Trump, we need some fundamental reforms to, to improve uh, the way our governance works. You talk about foreign interference in our elections, uh, uh, presidential taxes. Just give our viewers a, a quick summary of the basic argument you make about reconstructing the way the presidency works.
0: Sure, and thank you. So this book begins from the premise that the presidency is in dire need of across-the-board reform. We had serious across-the-board reform of the presidency in the 1970s after Watergate, Vietnam, and the Church Commission. Those reforms were successful in the large, and for 50 years they worked. A lot of them worked through law but many of them worked through the instantiation of norms which are non-legal expectations of behavior that presidents followed. Donald Trump's presidency revealed across the board that these rules are inadequate now. That norms when possible need to be made into laws and norms that can't be made into laws have to be bucked up as much as they can. And so across a range of issues I'll just put them in a few baskets. One would be called corruption broadly conceived Foreign interference in elections, there are loopholes in those laws that the Mueller report and investigation revealed that need to be tightened up so we don't have collusion between foreign governments and presidential candidates. The rules on tax disclosure and conflict of interest that every president abided by for 50 years as a matter of norms and that Trump flouted needs to be changed so that presidents can no longer do that. The pardon power, as we suggested, need to be tightened up. We have rules about protection of the press. That's one basket. A second basket is about the rule of law, which we haven't discussed. White House Justice Department relations. And uh, here there are a whole set of issues about Justice Department independence and the relationship between the, the president's power to control law enforcement and ensuring that the president doesn't use that power in a corrupt way. This is a complicated subject. Some of these things can be done within the executive branch, other require Others require um, uh, congressional action. Those two sets of reforms we believe are the most important in cleaning up the presidency. There are a few others. There are other ones that are harder to do, but just as important. Vacancies reform is the last one I'll mention. President Trump has taken advantage of the fact of loopholes in in the the Vacancies Reform Act of the late 1990s to basically put in cronies atop or people who aren't confirmed by the Senate atop or in the middle of agencies in ways that give him influence that's inappropriate. These are supposed to be Senate-confirmed positions. It's supposed to be a check on the president's power to put people in these positions. We have a whole series of reforms on that that are also very important, but that one we think will be harder to achieve.
1: So, Jack Goldsmith, I want to thank you for this extraordinary look at the issues that are viscerally before the country and all, all of us. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, Washington Post Live will be back this afternoon at two o'clock for a deep look at how artificial intelligence is transforming the healthcare industry. And tomorrow, my colleague Carol Leoning will interview former FBI Director James Comey. So be with us for that. Again, Jack Goldsmith, thank you very much.